Don't you want devoted followers who leave their families for you, give their money to you, give their bodies to you, give up their lives for you, consider you God, and will kill for you? Don't you want to become a cult leader? Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into topics within our beloved true crime community. Now, of course, I want to thank some of my patrons, Janice, Hammer, Katerina, Robert, Florence, Teresa, Sarah, Sophie, Nanette, Emily, Gabrielle, my two Emmas, Bree, David, John, and Judy. Thank you so, so much. I appreciate you. So this podcast is going to be on the cult, Heaven's Gate. Now, I know that this is another one that's been, quite frankly, done to death. But again, as I've said before, there's a whole generation of people that are just awakening to the love of true crime that aren't really aware of this particular group. So let's go ahead and go through it. It was highly, highly requested. Um, It's not too scandalous or upsetting. I don't believe there's any disclaimers needed. So just sit back and enjoy the story. Now, Heaven's Gate's main character was a man by the name of Marshall Applewhite. Marshall Herf Applewhite Jr. was born on May 17, 1931 in Spur, Texas. So let's get into some history for that time. Now, as we've talked about this before, it still had a very significant impact in the United States. The Great Plains was suffering from terrible droughts. This, on top of the over-farming of the area, led to huge dust storms and soil erosion. 1931 was the beginning of the Dust Bowl. New Zealand was hit with an 8.3 magnitude earthquake in Hawke's Bay this year, killing about 260 people. Ten days later, a 7.3 magnitude aftershock hit and further damaged the already heavily affected area. There were actually more than 500 aftershocks from this earthquake that lasted into the next year. King Alfonso XIII of Spain was forced to live in exile in Rome after Spain became a republic. A civil war erupted in Spain not long after. In China, Japan invaded Manchuria under the idea that they were protecting a Japanese-controlled railway where there had been an explosion. Japan took over the entirety of Manchuria, and they had already been occupying nearby Korea. They were worried that the potential unification of China could endanger their control of that region. Also in China, the Yellow River flood became what is thought to be the deadliest natural disaster of historic times, or at least current historic times, killing between 900,000 to 2 million people. The average cost of a new house in the United States was just under $7,000 and a car was just under 700. The average wage per year was around $2,000 and a gallon of gas was just 10 cents. 
Also in 1931, the Empire State Building construction was completed, and the classic horror film Dracula was released, as well as Frankenstein, and the first Warner Brothers Mary Melodies cartoon was created. So this was the atmosphere that Marshall was born into. Marshall's parents were Marshall Herf Applewhite Sr. and Louise Winfield. Marshall Sr. was born in 1901 in San Antonio, Texas. I really couldn't find anything out about his early years other than he grew up to be a Presbyterian minister. He was described by people that knew him as a man who smiled a lot, was an extremely hard worker, and a good man of faith. Louise was born in 1901 as well, somewhere in Texas. Now, together the couple had four children. Carolyn was the first in 1925, then Anna in 27, Marshall was the third in 1931, and then a brother, John, in 1942, though Anna later said in an interview that John was severely mentally handicapped and spent nearly all of his life in a state home in Texas. Now, Marshall Sr. felt that he had been charged with his life's mission to establish new Presbyterian churches all over Texas. He was energetic and motivated and had been sent from San Antonio to Austin, then Spur, where little Marshall was born, then Sweetwater, Breckenridge, Corpus Christi, raising churches in each one, being the preacher there for about a year, maybe two, then moving on to the next city. So essentially, Marshall Sr. would uproot his family, often move, and then they would all have to start over again. While Marshall Sr. was building churches and preaching, Louise was directing the church choir and playing the piano. Now, little Marshall was most often referred to as Herf throughout his life, but I'm going to keep calling him Marshall. And it was said that his sisters absolutely devoted themselves to him. They doted on him. He was charismatic, had a great sense of humor, and was a bit of an overachiever. Marshall was a great student, highly intelligent, and was most often on the honor roll at school. It was reported that he was also usually the class president, and he sang in the school and the church choir. He looked up to his father tremendously and wanted to become a minister like him someday, but he did show a talent for music. And as he went on in school, he joined the debate team, and he was really talented there as well. He joined the non-com club, which just enabled cadets to learn military things like guns and drills, and they had to wear their very real army uniforms to school on Fridays. But again, the family moved quite frequently, and Marshall was left having to re-establish himself in new schools with new peers and so on. They were, in a sense, kind of a nomadic family. Marshall graduated from Corpus Christi High School in 1948 with honors. And that was his childhood. There's not a ton of detailed information, but I think what we have paints a pretty clear picture. It appears that, outside of the constant moving, Marshall had an idyllic childhood. 
His parents were hardworking, driven, charitable people who committed their lives to the cause that they believed in and raised their children in this environment. There was absolutely nothing that I found that indicated the parents abused or neglected any of the children at all. I found no instance of him being inappropriately touched by anyone, nothing, no injuries, nada. He had two sisters who apparently doted on him, a mother that did the same and a father that he admired greatly and wanted to follow in his footsteps. Marshall was a bit of an overachiever. He joined the popular clubs and seemed quite happy to push himself to be, you know, top shelf, if you will, but that's also very telling if you stop to look at it. An article in education.com stated that, quote, Research indicates that constant striving for perfection can actually reduce rather than increase productivity and achievement. End quote. Overachieving perfectionist children show many more signs of stress, anger, and other problems compared to more laid back children. Kids who think that they have to be perfect are at a higher risk for mental health problems like depression, anxiety, and eating disorders. They're also very good at hiding their symptoms so often their mental health problems go untreated. Ironically, perfectionism tends to increase the likelihood that a child might fail. So these children grow up to suppress their emotions because they believe that sadness, anger, frustration, jealousy, or any other emotion commonly labeled as negative by our modern society are unacceptable or makes them look weak. They feel disconnected from their emotions or feel shame. Perfectionists are prone to addiction, have chronic stress and physiological tension. They have difficulty receiving criticism, sometimes live life out of alignment and are always seeking the approval of others, having difficulty with intimate relationships and on and on. The MacArthur Foundation published an article saying that moving to a new home in childhood can impede social skills, behavior, and school performance. Quote, frequent moves take a toll on children's social-emotional well-being. At all ages, each additional move is associated with small declines in social skills and emotional and behavioral problems. These deficits can accumulate, leaving multiple movers at a greater risk. Residential moves during early and middle childhood have long-term effects on social-emotional outcomes, suggesting that stability is particularly important in early life. Moves to a new school is incredibly stressful for children, and it disrupts their academic skills as well as emotional functioning. The American Psychological Association states that researchers have found that the more times people moved as children, the more likely they were to report lower life satisfaction and psychological well-being. Now, there is the introvert versus extrovert debate within this research suggesting that extroverted children do fare better than introverts, and I believe Marshall was most assuredly an extrovert. So, while on the outside, it might appear that Marshall indeed had an idyllic childhood, and for some of us, it certainly wasn't filled with many 
unspeakable and hard instances, but nonetheless, we can see that his childhood experience very well could have set him up for the attitudes and life he later lived. So let's continue. So after high school, Marshall enrolled at and attended Austin College outside of Dallas, Texas. He majored in philosophy, but had decided at that time that he wanted to become a minister like his father. And just like in high school, he joined clubs and was very active in college. And though he did love philosophy, his true passion at the time was music. According to an article from the New York Times, his college roommate, a man by the last name of Alexander, said that he recruited him for the choir and noted Marshall had a great baritone voice. They were friends and actually took several classes together. Marshall had a particular fondness for a philosophy professor who taught him the importance of, quote, thinking beyond what society does, end quote. This professor taught Marshall about Plato, Aristotle, and John Locke. Alexander said, quote, he really taught you to ask the right kind of questions, to not go along with the crowd, end quote. And when asked, Mr. Alexander said that Marshall was popular, smart, an extrovert, but never pushy. Marshall met his future wife, Anne Pierce, during this time. Anne was originally from Corpus Christi. Marshall graduated in 1952 with a bachelor's degree in philosophy and went on to enroll that fall at the Union Theological Seminary of Virginia in Richmond. This would be a three-year schooling that would see him as an ordained Presbyterian minister. His first semester consisted of Old and New Testament studies, theology, and the practice of ministry. He and Anne got married shortly after he got his bachelor's degree, and she, of course, moved with him to Richmond. Now, he and his wife's landlord actually remembered the couple as nice and said that Marshall was, quote, really gifted. He had a wonderful voice. He went to the mosque to hear artists who came here. End quote. But he was only a student at the seminary school for about one semester before dropping out. He really just loved music and he felt that that was his calling, so he and his wife moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, and Marshall began working as the director of music at the local First Presbyterian Church. The piano player for that church said that she thought Marshall had a beautiful voice and was a very approachable person, that he was in fact a strong leader. Even she and her husband and the Applewhites sometimes did double dates together. And then Marshall was drafted into the U.S. Army in 1954 at 23 years old, where he was stationed in Salzburg, Austria, and then back in the States in White Sands, New Mexico, where he worked as an instructor in the Army Signal Corps. He only served a couple of years and was honorably discharged in 1956. After this, the couple moved to Colorado, where Marshall enrolled at the University of Colorado as a graduate student in music. Interestingly enough, while in school, he also worked part-time as an occupational therapist in a tuberculosis hospital. 
1957, his son Mark was born. In 1958, he received his master's degree at the age of 27. The very next year, his daughter Lane was born and they moved to Tuscaloosa, Alabama so that Marshall could work as a teaching assistant in choral music at the University of Alabama. Now, his former students said that they liked him, that he was intelligent and charismatic. His senior colleagues, however, described him as a maverick, if you will, with little respect for rules or authority, according to the book Notable Reprobates by Joseph Tyson. He was also traveling up to New York City during this time and auditioning for parts in Broadway or singing in an opera, but he never did get hired. So, even though he presented himself as the ultimate family man, doting over his children and projecting his family as quite, you know, white picket fence, if you will, Marshall began questioning his sexuality and pursued an inappropriate relationship with a male student of his. Now, due to his strict Christian upbringing, he felt that this lifestyle was very sinful and he became frustrated at the fact that he would even have these desires. And the university discovered the affair and fired him immediately. Now, there was no hiding this from his wife, who was terribly hurt and upset, as anyone would be, and she left him filing for divorce. It is important to note that after they separated, Marshall never saw his children or Anne again. Mark was just seven years old and Lane was just five. Anne took the children and moved back to Texas and went on to marry a school principal named Sam Nickerson. And as this was the mid-60s before Twitter and Facebook, the scandal didn't immediately follow him everywhere, and he was able to get a teaching position in Houston, Texas at St. Thomas University in 1966. In his spare time, he sang for the Houston Opera Company. During this time, his friends described him as someone who enjoyed a more extravagant lifestyle, dressed very fashionably, liked expensive liquor, sports cars, and most importantly, music and theater. And then it was at this time that he began to live openly gay. He had a male live-in partner in Houston's Montrose section in 1969, which we all know was a time for free love and major social changes. But the next year, he was again fired from his job due to an inappropriate relationship with a male student, though this time they did allow him to resign. He had also been trying to have a relationship with a woman at the same time, but her family vehemently disapproved and she broke up with him. So the accumulation of losing yet another job having a failed marriage, trying to live as openly gay and yet maintain a straight relationship during a time when being gay was still extremely taboo. And then he found out that his father had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. All of these things, all of this left him in a deep depression and what he later said was other emotional problems. Marshall Sr. died the next year in 1971. 
So to try to clear his head and start all over again, Marshall briefly moved to Taos, New Mexico, where he operated a deli and was moderately successful, and his customers loved him, but he really wanted to go back to Texas, so he went. Now, according to the same article from the New York Times, while back in Houston, Patsy Swayze, you know, Patrick Swayze's mother, worked with Marshall in a theater group and said that she heard the others begin to gossip about how Marshall had once been so well-spoken and was suddenly starting to act strangely in talking about UFOs. But why? Some sources say that he had begun not feeling well and found out that he was suffering with a blocked artery and he nearly died. Other sources say that he felt he was having some kind of mental breakdown and went to a hospital. Still, another source said that he accompanied an injured theater actor to the hospital after an injury. Regardless, while in the hospital, he met a nurse named Bonnie Nettles. So let's talk just a bit about her. She was born Bonnie Lou Trousdale in 1927 in Houston, Texas, the fourth daughter of religious and hardworking parents. Her parents raised her Baptist and quite religious, but once she was grown, she no longer practiced her familial religion. She studied and became a registered nurse. She met and married businessman Joseph Nettles in 1949, and when she was 22 years old, they started a family. They had four children in total. It isn't clear exactly when she began to explore other kinds of spirituality outside of traditional religion, but she began trying to communicate with the dead and spirits and held seances and so on. So, needless to say, her husband was not thrilled with this new behavior. In 1972, Bonnie's seances got her to believe that a 19th century monk named Brother Francis was communicating with her personally. She began studying astrology, the occult, and theosophy, which is a religion that was established in the late 19th century in the United States, founded by a Russian immigrant. Very long story short, they believe that there is an ancient and secretive brotherhood of spiritual masters all over the world, but namely in Tibet, and they have great wisdom and supernatural powers. So Bonnie began visiting several fortune tellers, and she swore that they told her that she would soon meet a tall man with light-colored hair and a fair complexion, and her life would be forever changed. Now around this time is when Bonnie and Marshall met at the hospital. Marshall claimed, quote, When Mrs. Nettles entered the room, our eyes locked in a shared recognition of esoteric secrets, end quote. There was a spiritual, instant, though platonic, chemistry between the two, and they said that they felt like they had known each other for a very long time. They both agreed that they simply must have met in a former life. Bonnie apparently agreed to perform an astrological reading for Marshall. And now Marshall at this point was already beginning to explore spirituality outside of Christianity and later said that he had had several visions, okay? One of which he was told by a spirit of sorts that he had been chosen for the role much like Jesus's role. 
Now, some speculate that he may have actually had a schizophrenic episode at this time as he stated that he heard voices and was having suicidal impulses. But one thing is very clear. Once the duo met, their lives changed rapidly. Bonnie and her husband divorced in 1973. He kept the three remaining children who still lived at home. Bonnie and Marshall moved in together, but again, I have to stress that all sources said they never had any kind of relationship beyond just close friendship. But Marshall was still having delusions, and rather than take him for the help he needed, Bonnie rather told him that he was receiving messages from a, quote, higher wisdom. She immediately introduced him to her circle of friends that quickly believed the same as she. Marshall and Bonnie even opened a bookstore that they called the Christian Arts Center, where he would give lectures on, quote, mind, soul, spirit, awareness. They were forced to vacate the bookstore, though, for not paying the rent. But the experience had landed them their very first follower, a woman named Sharon. So in early 1973, Bonnie and Marshall decided to go on an evangelizing mission, traveling all over North America. Bonnie and Marshall visited a nightclub that her eldest daughter worked at to tell her that they were leaving. This daughter told AP News in an interview, quote, I wasn't allowed to say goodbye. I wasn't allowed to tell her that I loved her and hold her hand. I felt like Marshall prevented that from happening. I remember going down the stairs with her, trying to keep from crying. They just said that God was leading them in a certain direction. They weren't sure exactly where or what the mission was, but she said it was really big, end quote. And this would be the last time that Bonnie would ever see any of her children. She did write kind of cryptic letters, though, once in a blue moon. So as they traveled, the duo slept in state parks, campgrounds, or sometimes just on the ground. Their travels were described as restless, intense, often confused, peripatetic spiritual journey. They had virtually no money and had to resort to donating plasma to make money and sometimes only had a bit of bread to eat to survive on. Marshall was an avid reader, and while the pair studied the New Testament in the Bible, Marshall was also reading science fiction books. The outcome of all of these factors is what created the basic outline for their new religious belief system. They came to believe that they had been specifically chosen and given, quote, higher level minds than most all other people. And if you're familiar with the Bible, they even decided that they were the two witnesses that were described in the Bible's book of Revelation and would speak on the matter at various churches, referring to each other as the two. And then that morphed into the UFO, too. That turned into the duo believing that they would both be killed, brought back to life, and witnessed by others being transported onto a spaceship. They named this event the Demonstration, and of course their message was largely blown off. Bonnie even wrote her daughter a letter that said, quote, 
and I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. End quote. Her daughter actually had no clue what she was talking about. So in 1974, they were arrested for credit card fraud, though the charges were dropped. Marshall also rented a car somewhere in St. Louis, Missouri, and then never returned it. So he was arrested in Texas and sentenced to six months in prison. His argument was that he had been divinely authorized to keep the car. And it was while he was in prison that he deeply pondered his ideas and abandoned his beliefs in the occult and focused entirely on extraterrestrials and evolution. He made it his mission to contact aliens and began seeking out like-minded followers. With Bonnie at his side, Marshall began to preach what we know of as the ancient astronaut theory that we see on the show Ancient Aliens that advanced extraterrestrials planted mankind on Earth eons ago, according to the book written by Joseph Tyson. These aliens, on occasion, monitored humans by abducting them and then studying them with very technologically advanced equipment. Being disappointed with the results, they would then send alien-human hybrids to Earth to try to fix things. Some of these beings, these hybrid beings, included the historical Buddha from the 5th century or Jesus from the 1st century, and then wouldn't you know, Marshall from the 20th century. He preached that humanity was in its essence defective, influenced, and corrupted by Luciferians through the media which he compared to Klingons from Star Trek who were also aliens. The, quote, holy aliens who, quote, deposited our human ancestors were trying a last-ditch effort, if you will, to get the fallen humans to reach the next evolutionary step. And if they did not listen to Marshall, they would be, quote, plowed under. To them, the human body was just a vehicle of sorts, and in order to get to this heaven and outer space, people had to let go of the human aspect of themselves, this being their dreams, desires, impulses, personal tastes, everything. Marshall also apparently interpreted the biblical immaculate conception of Mary as an actual alien abduction and had been impregnated while in a UFO. And then after a while, intelligent people began to think, wow, this really makes sense. Slowly but surely, they developed a following. In 1975, they had around 20 members while they had been in Oregon, and the meeting that they held there caught the notice of the local news. This turned into Bonnie and Marshall being the center of a book written in 1976 entitled UFO Missionaries Extraordinary. But surprisingly, this attention made the duo nervous, and they dispersed their followers out to do missionary work and were told to lay low. You see, they wanted their followers to be obedient and dedicated, and they spent years living in campsites with their followers. But they also traveled to speak at New Age seminars, and they gained followers that way. 
They then began to refer to each other as Bo and Peep. They were at 70 or so followers when Marshall began preaching that they needed to completely separate from earthly desires in order to be able to ascend to the next level, meaning forsaking worldly attachments. In typical cult form, guys, he told his followers to renounce their families, their children, parents, what have you, friends, drugs and alcohol, any and all valuables, including jewelry, media, facial hair, and any and all sexuality. Each member was then required to take on biblical names. That turned into each member adopting a name with only one syllable and then add Odie at the end. So, Ricodi or Jamodi, and so on. But Marshall's paranoia really began to rear its ugly head, and he became convinced that he and Bonnie would be assassinated. He told the followers that the act would, in fact, fulfill their prophecy. In 1976, Bonnie and Marshall then began going by the names of Doe and T because the names were meaningless. That June, they and their followers gathered at Medicine Bow National Forest in southeast Wyoming, saying that a UFO was coming to visit them, but then later Bonnie announced that the visit had indeed been canceled. They began putting more strict rules on their followers and only communicated through assistance or through writing, pushing the idea that the two of them were the only source of truth. Their followers became completely dependent upon them. No real independent thought was okay. They were to run any and all ideas or questions across Marshall. They all did, however, have the illusion of choice. But, as cults often do, they were successful and the money began to come in. People would sign over all of their money to the duo, be it inheritance donations, and so on. With this money, they bought houses in Denver, Colorado, and then eventually in Dallas, Texas. They covered their windows so that no one can see inside because they were highly secretive, and they apparently referred to their houses as crafts. By 1980, they had around 80 followers. Many of those followers had jobs, most often working with computers or car mechanics. Two years later, they began allowing their followers to contact their families, even allowing them to go visit their mothers on Mother's Day. But they were still strictly instructed not to speak about their group and to tell them that they were studying computers at a monastery. At this point, Marshall had already begun to record himself doing these sermons on audio and videotape. Now, at the end of the age, I'm afraid I feel is right upon us. And again, on occasion, the two would wake their followers up in the dead of night, exclaiming that the aliens were coming to take them away and to come, come outside. Then, of course, nothing happened, and then they would tell their followers that it was in fact a test or that the mission had been canceled by alien superiors for classified reasons. Bonnie began buying unisex uniforms for everyone, consisting of black track suits and matching Nike sneakers, and their diet was oddly limited. They ate pasta, steak, pizza, vegetables, rice, cereal, fruit, bread, ice cream, and high-protein shakes, but then that was it. 
each member was encouraged to do a master cleanse too, which was to consume nothing but lemonade with cayenne pepper in it. They labeled themselves Total Overcomers Anonymous. Then they changed it to Human Individual Metamorphosis, and then finally they settled on Heaven's Gate, which is what we know them as now. Bonnie took on the role of psychic, and Marshall was her androgynous life companion. He started calling her father while making himself out to be basically Jesus. He referred to his physical body as a container that held the same spirit that had inhabited Jesus's container over 2,000 years ago. There were daily counseling sessions, communal meals, manual labor, reading detective magazines, playing board games, and watching TV. Marshall believed wholeheartedly that the aliens were communicating to him through the sci-fi shows that he watched on television. And now there was an approved list of TV shows that they could watch, which included Star Trek, of course, X-Files, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Touched by an Angel, and 60 Minutes. Approved movies were Asteroids, Primal Fear, and Chain Reaction. Men and women slept separated to keep any urges or thoughts at bay. Marshall believed that his sexual urges is what, quote, led him astray. Everyone was assigned a buddy, usually not compatible people either, but the purpose for that was to spy and then feed information back to the two leaders. They also co-wrote a manual that they called the Procedures Book. You guys are not going to believe this. Within, it stated that no one should bathe longer than six minutes and not use more than one gallon of water. Newspapers and magazines other than pre-approved were prohibited. There was a seating chart for everything and members had to stay busy all day long. No long hair was permitted, no makeup, no hair dye, and when men shaved their faces, they were only permitted to use downstrokes. Not upstrokes, not side, just down. Every single thing was controlled, even down to the size of their pancakes, which of course couldn't be any more than four inches in diameter. Cameras were also installed so that members could be watched. And yet, Heaven's Gate saw up to 400 members at its peak. And then in 1983, one of Bonnie's eyes began to bother her, and it bothered her enough that she had to go to the doctor to have it checked. She believed it to be a severe infection, but it was determined that it had malignant cancer within and it had to be surgically removed. It was recommended to her that she have chemotherapy as the cancer was spreading, but she refused. She chose home remedies, which of course were not effective. The cancer spread to her liver, and she died in late 1985 in Dallas, Texas. Now, as you can imagine, Marshall was completely devastated. He told the group that her, quote, broken-down vehicle was left behind and that she had gone to the next level beyond human. He had her cremated and her ashes put into a lake in Texas, but no one knows which lake it was. Bonnie's daughter that interviewed with AP News stated that Bonnie wrote her daughter 
after her diagnosis, stating that she in fact wanted out of this group, but, quote, there wasn't a graceful way to leave, end quote. And then there were no more letters. Her children actually hadn't known that she died until nearly a year after. But after her death and her not being there to help control Marshall, he began to revise the group's doctrines. And by the mid-1990s, the group was completely reclusive and called their collective selves Higher Source. They created a website to recruit followers, and that website is still active today. So you know I'm putting the link to that in the notes. The only way to salvation was to adhere to his commands. This then led to his preaching about the impending end of the world, as all cult leaders do. The group made videos called, quote, Beyond Human, The Last Call, end quote, with information about the group and what they called the next level in the early 1990s broadcasted by satellite. The group also took out ads around the world, including USA Today in 1993. The headline of that ad read, UFO Cult Resurfaces with Final Offer. On January 17, 1994, when an earthquake hit Los Angeles, California, Marshall and his followers claimed that that was the sign of the beginning of the end. It was a 6.7 magnitude quake that was felt as far away as Las Vegas, Nevada. They built a compound in New Mexico, but Marshall's health was beginning to wane due to his age, and they uprooted and moved to San Diego. Then the group came to believe through Marshall's teachings that the coming Hale-Bopp comet actually housed the UFO coming to take them to their next level beyond human. It was agreed that all of the males of the group would get castrated or have their testes removed to further hinder any urges. By 1996, the group recorded more videos encouraging others to leave with them, saying it was the, quote, last chance to evacuate Earth before it is recycled, end quote. We're going to talk to you about the most urgent thing that is on our mind, and what we suspect is the most urgent thing on the minds of those who will connect with us. We'll title this tape, uh, Planet Earth About to be Recycled. Your only chance to evacuate is to leave with us. Planet Earth About to be Recycled. Your only chance to survive or evacuate is to leave with us. By 1996, the group recorded more videos encouraging others to leave with them, saying that it was the last chance to evacuate Earth before it is recycled. As the Hale-Bopp comet drew closer to Earth in 1997, and side note, I watched it on top of a building, Applewhite and his followers prepared to leave the planet. Marshall fully believed that Bonnie was on the UFO that was in or accompanying the comet. On March 21st, they went out and performed their last supper, if you will, at a restaurant, all eating the exact same meal. Turkey pot pie, blueberry cheesecake, and iced tea. 
The next day, when the comet was closest to the planet, Marshall and his followers dressed in their black clothes, brand new Nike tennis shoes, then committed suicide by drinking a mixture of vodka and barbiturates, then put plastic bags over their heads. Thankfully, an anonymous phone call to the police four days later led to their discovery. 39 bodies were found, and Marshall's body was found seated on the bed of the main bedroom of a mansion that they had all rented. He had, before he died, been convinced that he had cancer, but his later autopsy showed otherwise. Now, interestingly and sadly, Lane, Marshall's daughter, married a preacher, and they had a daughter together named Hannah. Hannah lived in Corpus Christi and was accused of poisoning her adopted son, but was cleared on appeal in 2017. Lane's own husband was convicted in 1984 of bludgeoning a 16-year-old girl to death. Now, to me, this is just a really sad story with so many facets. Now, I am a fan of the show Ancient Aliens, and I find some of what they point out to be fascinating, you know, considering some of the etchings in stone and whatnot. But to take it to this level, you know, I don't know. And also, was Marshall schizophrenic? Well, he had visions, suffered with delusions, heard voices, and so on. The... Incredible Dr. Grande did a video on Marshall, and I'll leave the link to that in the notes as well. But very long story short, again, he went on to say that he did not believe that he had a personality disorder, but could have suffered from psychosis, and some of his videos and behavior displays did appear like schizophrenia. But like myself, Dr. Grande says specifically he's not diagnosing anyone. But I want to know, tell me guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below if you're watching, or you can DM me on Instagram at Serial underscore Killing. You can email me anytime, SerialKillingInstagram at gmail.com. Consider becoming a patron, and then I can do a lot more of these more often. But most importantly, thank you so much for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. And I'm still baffled, still humbled, and most appreciative of that. Thank you, and have a great day.